Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on July 17, 2018 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was the law. Let's just kick it off and welcome to the stage, Joe Richman. So uh, I was uh, asked to start with my own story, and it turns out that uh, I do have a story about uh, the law having to do with, uh, with my work. As an as a early reporter for uh, NPR, I was just starting out, this was in the mid-90s, and I was doing this very strange story about, um, it turns out that, uh, you know, in New York City where I live, they've just put a you know, newspaper out on the street. But there was this one moment in the mid-90s where newsprint was really valuable and it was getting really, you can make a lot of money recycling it. And so people were coming up out, from, out of state and gathering all the newspapers that people were recycling on the sidewalk and then selling them. And New York was like, hey, we should be making this money. So they made it illegal to do that. But this isn't the kind of law enforcement job that police really like to do. So they assigned it to the sanitation department. So they deputized the sanitation department to, to police this, uh, this new crime ring of stealing newspapers. And I was assigned to do, uh, to kind of, to do this. So I embedded the sanitation department and, and, and did a, a ride around with them. These two guys in two unmarked police cars and we rode around and it was a successful night. A lot of arrests, a lot of people, people coming up with these ba- vans from Virginia and loading up their trucks with newspapers and they were making arrests. So it was such a successful night that they were making arrests, and um, they made so many arrests, that, and they had this other police car too, that at one point they were all gonna take everyone that they had arrested back to the police department, but they had to bring their vans back too, and the police people they arrested were you know, in handcuffs, and they didn't have enough people to drive all the police cars back, and they turned to me, and they said, would you drive one of our police cars back to the station with us in this convoy. So it was these confiscated vans, a regular police car, an unmarked police car, and me in another unmarked police car. And we drove through the streets of New York and we went the wrong way down a one-way street. And I got to record what is one of my favorite scenes um, as a radio reporter, whereas I was driving, I got to reach over to my tape recorder and say, I'm driving a police car down a one-way street the wrong way. This is so cool. And that was my run-in with the law. Um, first story tonight is John Smith Horn. Welcome, John Smith Horn. First, seventy-five dollars. That's what the judge says is my fine. I'm guilty. And Judge Brennan of the Livingston Municipal Court says, "Go to the clerk." and pay $75 for careless driving. It's 1977. I'm 17 years old. I'd have my license for about six weeks, and I hit a parked car. (laughs) And $75 represents 30 hours worth of work, because in 1977, the minimum wage in New Jersey is $2.50. I worked all summer at a trophy factory in the nearby town. And I've got the money in my pocket. And so $75 buys my freedom that night. It also buys the opportunity for me, my friend Ricky, who comes to court with me, the judge and everybody else in the courtroom to know. But my parents don't know. And the dent on the station wagon is blamed on my older sister, (laughs) who's notorious for parking by sound. (laughs) And so as a guilty high school senior, I'm a free man. But in that same month of October 1977, there's a man, a man I don't know, but his name is Lawrence McKinney. He's just a couple of years older than I am. And he's accused of a crime he didn't commit. He lives in Tennessee and he goes before a judge and claims his innocence. But they don't listen to him. And in fact, he's sentenced to 115 years in prison. I'm guilty, he's innocent. 30 years later, 
Lawrence McKinney is released from jail. 30 years later, the state of Tennessee has determined through DNA evidence that he wasn't the person who committed the crime. He's released. His conviction is not overturned. His conviction is set aside. And the state of Tennessee, in their incredible sense of generosity, hands him a check to start his life over again. The check is for $75. That's $2.50 for every year of his life that he spent in jail. There's just one problem with that $75 check. He needs to cash it. He has no ID. And it actually takes him months to finally get that check cashed. Now about 10 more years goes by and he actually finally gets a certain degree of justice. But at the same time, I'm a teacher. And this past October, I take my students to municipal court in Hartford, Connecticut. Superior court is what it's officially called. And we watch a number of court cases take place. A variety of arraignments for a wide variety of crimes. Lots of people are given accelerated rehabilitation. But one woman finally walks up and the judge standing, sitting in front of her says, how do you plead? She says, guilty as charged. The judge says, fine, that'll be $75. Please pay the clerk. And it sounds really familiar to me. And I lean forward a little bit. But then a remarkable thing happens. This woman says, I don't have it. And now my students are leaning forward. Eighth grade students who are wondering, what's up? What's going to happen? And indeed, she doesn't have $75. And the judge says, well, explain. And she said, well, I work. And I get paid every two weeks. And I don't have the money right now. I'll have it by next Friday. And the judge, in her wisdom, looks at her calendar and figures out three weeks and says, please come back and make sure you've made payment by that point. And when we return to my classroom, my students are incredulous. Why doesn't this lady have $75? And naturally, my kids who live in South Windsor, Connecticut, come from pretty good families, middle class, upper middle class families. I turn the question back to them. And naturally, they're ready to respond by saying, why didn't she ask a friend? Or her mom or dad? Or family members? And I turn the question back to them and say, and what if you don't have that? And it stops them. And it stops me. Because as a teacher, this is another part of my job. I've never told them my story and what that $75 meant to me but now I think they have a better understanding. And so, as I sit down that afternoon, I have to think back and remember, my $75 just meant a bunch of hours of work. To Lawrence McKinney, it meant 30 years of his life. And to this woman, it means She'll get it paid soon. And so my question that I will leave you with is, what's your $75? Thank you. Next up, we have Stephanie Levin. Welcome, Stephanie, to the stage. The idea of testifying in court was pretty scary to me, but I didn't think there was really a good alternative. I was 15, and my parents were just getting close to the trial of their divorce. This had been a long time coming. I mean, my earliest memories, they really didn't like each other. But by the time I started high school, their dislike had blossomed into hatred. And aside from the occasional screaming fight, they stopped talking to each other entirely and only spoke 
through me. So for example, my father at the front door on his way to work might say, tell your mother that I will be home for dinner tonight and I would like a steak. And my mother, who was in the kitchen and had overheard this, would say to me when I came into the kitchen, tell your father that if he doesn't give me my household money right away, we're going to be eating cold cereal for supper. And then I would run out to my father by the door, and he would give me a water bill that he'd counted out of his wallet, and I'd run back into the kitchen and give them to my mother. I was like the only neutral in a war zone. So it really made sense that they would get divorced, but there were two problems. One was my father was completely mortified that he might be the first person in his family to get a divorce. Remember, this was 50 years ago we're talking about, more than 50 years. And the other problem was that there was no such thing as no-fault divorce. One spouse, the good one, had accused the other spouse, the bad one, of having done something awful, like abandonment, or adultery, or some other terrible activity. So how were they going to get divorced? Because in their case, there was none of that. There was no adultery. There was no drunkenness. There was no, they just couldn't live together. Well. My mother got a lawyer, and she took me to see Mr. Steinberg with her. And he said to me, we're going to accuse your father of cruel and inhuman treatment. And since, to be frank, my father had a scary and terrible temper, he said, I think I won't have too much trouble proving it. But then he looked directly at me and said, and since you're the only one who's ever witnessed your father's behavior, y'all have to testify. Well, my heart sank. I mean, I didn't really want to testify against my father. I, I thought they both, you know, were, I mean, I, they just were two totally different people who wanted two totally different things out of life. They just didn't get along. But if I didn't testify, we'd have to go on living in this war zone that we were living in, and I couldn't stand the thought of that. So I convinced myself that it was my job to testify to make them feel, you know, make us all feel better. Uh, so that's how I found myself at 15, sitting at the front of the courtroom, waiting to be called to the witness stand. <clears throat> and Finally, Mr. Steinberg said, the next witness will be Stephanie Levin. And I walked up, very nervous, and sure that every eye was on me, looking at me with disapproval. Now, Mr. Steinberg had gone over with me what the testimony was. Basically, he would say, so your father yelled at your mother really loudly, didn't he? And I would go, yes. And, and he called her the B word sometimes, right? Oh, yes. And he uh, sometimes said F you to her, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. And you know, he threatened to do violent things. Oh, yeah. So I knew what I had to do. But when I got to the part about the B word, the judge leaned down from the bench and said, what exactly do you mean by a B word? And I was like, I looked at Mr. Steinberg, do I really have to tell him? Yeah, you do. So I said, uh, well, uh, bitch, your honor. Okay, and then we went forward and then we came to the F-U part and sure enough, he wanted me to spell that part out too. So I said, uh, he meant, fuck you, your honor. Oh. <laughs> And then, you know, thankfully, after another couple of things, Mr. Steinberg said, that's all, Your Honor. And the judge said, you can get up from the bench. And I, you know, started to get up. I wanted to go and find my father and tell him that I was testifying for him, not against him. 
But by the time I had it together to look around, he, he seemed to be gone. Uh, you know, and then life went on. I went to college not long after that. And then a number of years later, I went to law school. And it wasn't until I graduated from law school that I realized that one of the reasons I went was to somehow deal with the trauma I felt testifying in court at age 15. Thanks. Judith Stiles. Welcome, Judith Stiles. My name is Judith Stiles, and I'm going to tell the story about a man named Augusto Crespo and the law. But I'm going to start with the fact that I am a law-abiding citizen. I, I consider myself a girl who obeys the law. I believe in the law. But when I was in my 30s and I, I met Augusto, um, I had a crisis of faith about the law. I, I, I started to question all these laws and question my relationship with the law. And I, I lived in Soho then, uh, in New York City. Uh, I'm a potter, so I had a lot of time to think while I was working. And Soho wasn't fancy then. It was factories and uh, artists and, and businesses. And I was working, and I was thinking about the law. And I was thinking, maybe I'm not such a goody two-shoes. Maybe I don't really obey the law all the time. So I was thinking, I was making a little inventory list about all the times that I possibly did break the law. And I was starting with the day before when I stole newspapers to pack pottery. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't get arrested. And uh, I was 15, and I borrowed my sister's ID to drink in bars and meet guys. And the list started getting longer. And, I was having this illegal, everything was legal, illegal, and I was breaking the law all these times I wasn't even thinking about it. And all of a sudden, the freight elevator door opens up into the loft, and it's uh, um, Vicente. And Vicente was from Peru, and he worked in the rag business downstairs. It was a, a miserable job. It was, you know, a sweatshop, and uh, he got paid poorly. Sometimes he didn't get paid, but Vicente was was always in a good mood, so I was glad to see Vicente, and he was with this man, and he introduced me to Augusto Crespo, and he said, Augusto Crespo is my brother-in-law, and he just walked here from Peru. <laughs> and it, it took about four or five months, he hitchhiked a little, but he's here, and I, we want to know if you have a job for him. And I had this puny little pottery business in New York City. I could barely pay my own bills, and I'm thinking, oh, I can't hire anybody. And so I said, well, you know, Vicente, I'm late. I've got to take my daughter to school. I'll think about it. I'll get back to you next week. And so Augusto and Vicente planted themselves in front of the elevator door. They just stood there. And they're, they're talking to each other in rapid-fire Spanish. I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> And they're, they're pointing at my daughter, and I don't know what's going on. And finally, Vicente says, you know, Augusto has a daughter exactly your daughter's age. She's five. They were both born in March. And her name is Maella. And Maella can't go to school because the Shining Path, the terrorists are shooting everybody, and they shoot children. And uh, there's no electricity and no food. so." We were just wondering if maybe you have a job for Augusto. <laughs> and so I looked at Augusto, and I looked at my daughter, and I said, OK, you're hired. You start tomorrow. And that began the next day, 15 years of working side by side with Augusto Crespo in my pottery business. And it, it was wonderful. He, he worked like three people. He worked really hard, and he helped build the business. And we went from two kilns to six kilns. And we sold to Bloomingdale's and Macy's, and our business was growing. It was so wonderful. I, I loved working with him. And uh, the word got out that I was hiring. My husband and I were hiring. So one day, the elevator door opens up, and it's, it's Patty Rojas. And Patty Rojas says, hi, I hear you're hiring. I'm from Puebla, Mexico. I have four children in Mexico, and they're eating dirt. They're eating dirt because there's no food, no money for food. 
I said, okay, you're hired, you're hired. And I hired Patty Rojas, and I hired her sister, Maria Elena, and Valeriano Gomez, and Dario, and soon my husband and I had the studio full of illegal immigrants working for us, breaking the law, like big time. And so uh, we were double breaking the law because we paid them in cash. So a couple of years into the business with these people, working with these wonderful people, um, I said to my husband, I said, we have to do something. This isn't right. This isn't not right what we're doing here. Are we the employers? The employers have a responsibility. So I, what are we going to do? I, I get this bright idea. I say, Augusto, we, we, you started first, so we're going to start with you. You go out and you get one of those fake social security cards <laughs> and bring it back and we'll put you on payroll, we'll pay taxes, we'll, we'll take the first step. So we did that, and I didn't know if he could get one, and he came back the next morning with this beautiful little social security card, and he, we put him on payroll, and he started paying taxes, and we, my husband and I was my partner, we took him to an immigration lawyer, and if you know anything about immigration lawyers, they, they take all your money, they have mountains of paperwork, you open your mouth, they charge you, and it took seven years to get his green card, seven years. And meanwhile, his daughter, Mayella, was 12, like your age, and my daughter's 12, and he hasn't seen his daughter all this time. And so he goes for the big test, the immigration, and it's like an interrogation, like, why should you be in this country? You, you know, why do you deserve this job? So I gave him all these ceramic lingo, like jargon and molecular formulas, and I made him practice, and he said all these things, and the, Interviewer had no idea what he was talking about, and so he passed. He aced the test. He got his green card, and it was just in the mail. So we got his wife her green card, his daughter Mayela, Cesar his son. They, they became citizens. They could vote. All of them could vote. They, they bought a house. The kids went to community college. It was the, the American dream. And so I hadn't seen Augusto, I moved here to Wellfleet, and I hadn't seen Augusto for many years. And my husband and I went to Mayela's wedding last summer. And uh, I wanted to talk to Augusto alone. I wanted to say to him, I sat down with him and I said, you know, it's really, I'm really embarrassed this country, this country has not solved this immigration problem after all these years, after us, after all we did, still it's a big problem. And he goes, Oh, I know, I know, I agree, I, I agree. He says, that's why I voted for Trump. <laughs> and I, I thought I was hearing things. And I, I, you know, I have this rule with myself, I will not get in political arguments with people. So he, he tells me he voted for Trump because he believes in law and order and that everyone should follow the law. And I said, uh, you know, there are a lot of immigrants in Wellfleet, and they're like you, I think of you, and I look at them and I think, but for the grace of God go I, and if you don't believe in God, well, that's fine, but it's luck, it's just luck. And I, uh, I know I've run out of time, but I just brought a picture of Augusto, because uh, he's not an illegal alien, he's a citizen of the United States of America now. Bob Stein. Bob Stein? Woo! Uh, this story <clears throat> is contextual uh, for now. Um, 1973, I'm a full-time activist uh, against the war in Vietnam, and I'm smuggling books from China uh, in from Canada. And I, I get one day to... Uh, customs. And unbeknownst to me, they've changed the law. Up until that time, you only had to show a driver's license, but suddenly you needed a passport, and I didn't have my passport with me. And the customs guy says, okay, um, recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And it's 1973, and I'm a full-time activist against the war in Vietnam, and I pretty much hate everything that flag stands for, and there is no way I'm going to pledge allegiance to the flag. 
So we go around and around several times, and he says to me, okay, I get it. Who won the 1951 World Series? <laughs> and for those of you who are too young to know this, the New York Giants won any boy in America would know that who won the World Series at that point. We were that sort of um, coherent a society. And uh, there's nothing more to that story other than that that was a moment when th there was enough respect in our society from on, on all sides. He didn't agree with me but he respected that I had this opinion and he worked to find a solution. And I really appreciated that and I, I miss that in a, in a deep way now. Thank you. Lenny Weber. All right, come on up. Come on down. I grew up in Sacramento, California. And I, when I was about 12 or 13, um, I started developing this irrational fear that a prowler was going to come into our house. I'm not really sure where it came from, but so I was sure. I was very scared. And um, one thing that I was doing to prepare for this, um, I, I was very nearsighted. At the time, I wore glasses, but I would put my glasses sort of above my headboard, uh, above my bed, and I would do these drills silently so that if somebody were to come into my room, I could instantly reach up and grab the glasses <laughs> so that I could see who it was. And I was going to be ready. And um, one other problem was I knew that my parents sometimes would forget to lock the front door. And my bedroom, it was all one, a ranch-style house, all one floor. My bedroom was right by the front door. So in spite of all that, I would manage to get to sleep. But one night I woke up, and lo and behold, there was someone in my room. And um, I had, I don't know how I had this wherewithal to say, who is it? <laughs> and this voice said, Rick. <laughs> I only knew one Rick, Rick Blau. I knew it was not Rick Blau. But I continued on that line of inquiry and I said, Rick who? <laughs> and he starts kind of walking towards my bed and he's kind of like waving around and everything. And I'm doing the glasses drill and everything. But, uh, and all of a sudden, my father comes running into the room with a baseball bat, grabs Rick, grabs, slams him against the wall. And it turned out that it was Ricky McLaren, who lived two doors down in a house sort of like ours. He was completely drunk. He was the, the neighborhood juvenile delinquent and had wandered into the wrong house. So we, my father sort of steered him on his way home. The only thing this has to do with the law is that we didn't press charges. <laughs> Thank you. A Jerry Riley. So uh, a number of years ago, I got a job. And it was a, it was, in a lot of ways, it was a great job. It paid well. It was really interesting work. And best of all, I got to do it for a number of years, hanging in a hammock in the woods in Wellfleet, which uh, you know, that's, sounds like an ideal job. There was only one thing about the job I didn't like, which was the guy who ran this company was kind of a nasty piece of work. He, uh, you know, he was, uh, um, he could be charming, he was very smart, but he had sort of a nasty side and he was kind of, uh, you know, would treat people kind of badly from time to time. Now I was off site, I didn't have to deal with him. I stayed out of his, his crosshairs mostly. But I worked there for a number of years and I saw him sort of in action with various other people and uh, whatever. So some number of years later, I decided I'm, I'm, I'm out of here, I've had enough. And I gave my notice. And having watched this guy over the years, I realized anytime anybody left of their own accord, he would 
turn on them. And so I expected, as soon as I gave my notice, I am worried that, like, you know, this is going to get nasty. Uh, and remarkably, it didn't. So I serve out my whatever the, the remaining weeks of the job. I get to the last day. They throw a party. Everybody, including him, gets up and says nice things about me, and I leave. And I thought, I dodged the bullet. I'm out of here. So come up to Wellfleet. Um, there's only one last detail left, which is the HR department said that uh, the company owed me a week's pay for profit sharing. It was like, you know, it was July 1st, and I had worked the first half of the year, and, and that they would mail out the checks a week after I left. A couple of weeks go by, I'm hanging in the hammock in Wellfleet, and I said, I never got that check. So I called up the HR department, and, uh, and the woman says, I can't talk to you, you have to call Ben. And I said, what, is there some problem with the check? I can't talk to you, you have to call Ben. I'm like, okay, so I call Ben. They call him, hey, Ben, how you doing? Oh, yeah, well, how's the weather, oh, the vacation, Wellfleet, blah, 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 we're talking. And then I said, oh, Ben, I'm just calling about that uh, uh, profit sharing check. You don't work here, Jerry. I said, well, I know I don't work here, but I, I thought I got this check. You don't work here, and I don't owe you any money. And he slams the phone down. Well, I get off the phone, and I say to my wife, you know that profit sharing week's pay? We're never going to see that. I'm pretty sure of that. But I'm going to have some fun with this. So I write a letter, and I say, you know, dear Ben, and here's all the very, you know, calm, here's all the reasons why I think you owe me this money, and uh, perhaps there's a mistake, and, you know, there's some explanation of why you don't, but when I called, here's what happened, and unless somebody offers me an explanation, the only conclusion I can come to is you're a liar and a thief. <laughs> Sincerely, Jerry Riley. <laughs> now, you know, I knew that not this guy enough to know this was going to make him... Crazy. Uh, and then one last thing I did is I put on, I CC'd everybody who had left the company in the last year, who may or may not have been screwed this way. I didn't know. But I said CC. I never sent them copies. I just put this on there. So I sent the thing off. And then in rapid succession, three things happened. The first one was the best. I get registered mail, have to sign this thing, open it up. It's a big official thing. I'm being fired for cause retroactively for a job that I quit three weeks ago. I thought, I didn't know you could do that, but that's kind of cool, you know? <laughs> the next thing, I get a call from somebody who works there who said, what the hell did you send to him? He's out of his mind, and he's got the HR people calling everybody who ever left, and that stirred up this whole big thing, and I'm laughing. I'm thinking, well, it's not a whole week's pay worth of value, but I'm getting some value out of this. And then the third thing that happens is I get served by the sheriff with these papers that I am being sued for libel in court. And this isn't funny now. And I'm getting scared because, you know, being dragged into a legal thing is like the last thing anybody wants to do. But if you are going to be dragged into a legal thing, the last person you want to be up against is a wealthy man who is kind of crazy, holds a grudge, and has a long history of using the law as a weapon. So I am terrified. But I've got one, one ace up, up my sleeve. It's my brother. So I call my brother up. He's a lawyer. He's a really good lawyer. And I tell him what's going on. He's heard, he knows about this guy. He's heard the stories for the last few years. He knows what I'm talking about. He says, relax. I will take care of this. And I said, but what's going to happen? Don't worry. I got it. It's going to go away. I'll take care of it. So the next day, he calls up the corporate lawyer. He says, how you doing? I'm calling my client. Apparently, my guy is, uh, your guy's suing my guy for libel. It's kind of some ridiculous case. And the lawyer says, it's not a ridiculous case. Well, whatever. I, I'm just calling to check in with you. Um, a couple of things I want to tell you. One is, uh, you should know that my client is my brother. And, and he's done all, I owe him big time. So he's got all the free legal help he needs. I just want to let you know that. The second thing is, um, I'm a, I don't know what kind of lawyer you are, but I, I'm a trial lawyer. What I do is I go to trial. So if you want to sue him for this, I think this is a really stupid idea, but if you want to sue him, I'll do a trial. That's what I do. And, uh, and uh, the third thing is I should tell you, you know, if we're going to go to trial, I'll, I'll give, tell you my strategy. My strategy would be libel is about reputation and character. You're saying that my guy ruined your guy's character. Well, if we do this, if we go to trial, here's what's going to happen. There's a lot of people, apparently, who have strong feelings about your guy's character and reputation. And, like, 
what is it, three, four ex-wives he has? They probably all have something to say about his, his character. <laughs> Apparently, like, he's got a lot of neighbors and people in his town he's had run-ins, and I think they all would, would love to speak to his character. And there's all these people he, who are former employees. Uh, my brother tells me they're calling him up saying, sign me up, you know, I want to do this. He says, you don't want to do this. You know, you're going to drag this, you know, guy through the mud. Why would you do that? So the next day, they call back and they say, We're gonna se we'll settle this thing. But there's one condition. Um, I have to go meet him. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to do this. My brother says, no, this is what you got to do. We get, we'll get this thing over with. So I go down there with my brother. We go in, and uh, six people in this tiny little room. And he gets up and starts insulting me and saying stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I'm just, and, but he signs the paper. And then just before we get up, all of a sudden, he stands up. He walks over, comes right over to me. He's, now he's up here, I'm down here, locks eyes with me, gets this like really scowl and says, you're a bad man. <laughs> and I say, you're a bad man. <laughs> and then we get up and we walk out the door and I have never seen him again. And I realized the whole civil law, like lawsuits, all lawsuits, pretty much every one of them, you can boil it down to those four words, you're a bad man. <laughs> now, now, there's one postscript to this story. After this happened, I was telling my friends about this, and two of my friends, the following week, when I told them the story, as soon as I told them that you're a bad man, they all like roared. They said, you know where that comes from? And I'm like, no. And they said, there's a really famous Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> and it got turned in when they made a movie. They used that as one of the things. And there's this spoiled, nasty 12-year-old kid who is supernatural powers, and like psychokinetic powers. And everybody around him is terrified because if he goes off, you know, he can unleash all this terror. And at the like, climax of this thing, somebody starts rattling this kid, and all the people are all like, don't do it. And all of a sudden, the kid says, you're a bad man, and unleashes all this, you know, this force. So that didn't happen for you know, this guy in the room. I think that's what he wanted to happen. That's my story. <laughs> Todd Basho. Is it Basho? Todd Basho. So it's uh, 1972, I uh, just finished uh, campaigning for McGovern door to door, I have hair down in my ass, and I am uh, deciding to go hitchhike through California and go visit my cousin. So I have my backpack, I have my Fry's boots, I have a sleeping bag, I have my blues harmonica, and I'm ready to go. And I fly from Boston to... San Francisco, spend a day there, and I go out to the road, and I figure, well, how hard could this be? And I put my thumb out, and amazingly, I get a ride almost instantly, and I hitchhike down the coast, stopping along the way, and I'll sleep by the side of the road, and I just put my sleeping bag out, and I play the blues harp, and I read for a little, and I go to sleep, and then I get to Big Sur, and so many people are giving me rides, and it's so beautiful that there are many points where I'm in the car, and I say, I'm sorry, could you let me out? here. I need to get out so I can walk because it was just so fantastic. And then I get all the way down to Laguna and it's amazing and the sun is shining and I'm a kid from Jersey. I've never seen anything like this before. And I go to the beach in Laguna and I'm, I have my sleeping bag behind my head and I've closed my eyes and the sun's shining and I start to smell dope. And I think, wow, am I in heaven now? And I open my eyes <laughs> And I'm not in heaven, but there's all these high school kids. It turns out it's not heaven. It's uh, high school got out. It's 3.30, and it's <laughs> Laguna Beach, and everybody's just hitting the beach and hanging out. And I get to my cousin's house and, uh, in L.A., and uh, we, we get together. We connect with each other. And he's a very generous guy, and he says, whatever I have is yours. If you've been hitchhiking, if you want, tomorrow I'll take my car and go travel around and see some things. So I wake up the next morning, and... Um, very generously, I, I find his car, and it's a brand-new Mercedes convertible, two-seater. And I think, well, I've always wanted to see Mexico. And so <laughs> I, I get in the car. What could, what could go wrong? And I drive down through the border, through past Tijuana. I get to the beach. It's amazing. 
I, there, I look around, there's not a soul in any direction. And so, of course, you know, I get naked and I'm swimming in the ocean. It's fantastic. And, and I can't see at all without my glasses like the other person. And I have everything down and I stumble out of the ocean and I can't see anything. But, but all of a sudden, there's a family who's on the beach in front of me with little kids. And uh, so they're screaming at me and yelling. And I grab my glasses and my clothes and I run up the hill and right, right near where my car's parked, I'm throwing my stuff in the car, and there's a six-foot-tall marijuana plant. So I think this is, this is like my destiny. And I, and I pick up the plant, and I strip all the leaves off, and I find a piece of newspaper, and I throw all the leaves in the newspaper, and I fold it up in a ball, and I throw it in the trunk of the car, and I get dressed, and my hair's still wet, and I go to drive home. And, what could go wrong? And I get in line, and I'm in line, and then they say, where are you coming from? And I say, Tijuana. And they say, where do you live? And I say, Massachusetts. And why are you here? Where's your license and registration? And I have no idea where the registration for the car is. And they say, put your car over there. And so I park the car over there, and my cousin's brand new Mercedes, and then I get out, and I go into a room. And uh, they start asking me all these questions. And then they pull my Fry's boots off. And they crowbar the heels off. And they start going through. By, they're slitting open my backpack. They're doing all this stuff. And they're looking for drugs. So at that point, I start to freak out, thinking, they're going to find the dope in the trunk. <laughs> um, and so they say, take everything out of your pockets. And I say, OK. And I start to take everything out of my pockets. And I start to empty this pocket. And all of a sudden, I'm slammed to the ground. There's a, a pistol to my head. They handcuff me, and I'm just like completely freaking out. And they reach down, and they, they see the flash of chrome. And of course, they pull my blues harp out of my, <laughs> out of my pocket, much to everyone's relief, I think. Uh, and then they say, OK, great. Um, you can go. And they throw me my keys, and I wander over to the side. and. It sort of looks like my cousin's car, but they've taken everything out of it. The front seats, the back seats, the door panels. Uh, they've completely disassembled my cousin's car and just thrown everything in. At this point now, I'm completely unglued because I'm thinking, they're going to find the dope. And I get in the car, and everything's rattling like crazy. And I drive across the border, and my heart's pounding. And I get like just across the border, and I finally pull to the side of the road, and I'm just like, oh. I'm completely freaked out. And I open the trunk of the car, and there's the newspaper. But it's been completely opened up, and it's been folded into this meticulous shape with all the dope still in it. They, were, they obviously were looking for somebody bigger than the guy smuggling a little bit. And they wanted me to know, ah, we have our eye on you. We saw it, but we let you go. And so that's my story. Jack Nice, Jack Nice, come to the stage, please. That uh, dreaded letter comes in the mail from the Superior Court, in my case, Connecticut. You are invited to appear to possibly be selected for jury duty. <laughs> oh, no, not me. How do I get out of this? Well, I didn't get out of it. Um, we went through voir dire, and I was selected for a jury as an alternate. An alternate? Will I ever get to vote? Who knows? The trial was interesting. Um, man had robbed a bank. He got about 30 paces outside the bank door when the dye pack exploded. It covered him and hundreds of dollars in red dye. But he kept running, and he kept holding on to that money. The police eventually caught him. And testimony at his trial was quite interesting. His girlfriend testified she came home, and he was washing red money in the bathtub. And he claimed that he had done a drug deal, and that he took a lot of red money for a little bit of drugs. The end result basically was uh, 
he possibly could be convicted. At the uh, end of the trial, the prosecutor uh, rested his case, the defendant lawyer rested his case, and I was not necessary as a juror because I was an alternate. So the judge asked me to stand up, and he thanked me profusely for my attention and uh, for being there as an alternate and uh, asked me if I had uh, learned anything or had any experience to share from being an alternate. So I addressed the judge. I said, yes, Your Honor, it was kind of like coitus interruptus. <laughs> I said, I was here for the foreplay. I paid attention during the main event, but I didn't get to vote so I had no climax. <laughs> of course, the court burst into laughter, and I was let out of the courtroom, not in handcuffs. <laughs> Thank you. Come on down, please. Todd Shrebel, I will say, by way of introduction, I just heard Todd said that he has never been in front of a microphone before in his life. <laughs> So, Hello, everyone. Um, my story starts in 1983. I'm 16 years old. I've had my license for two months. And it's New Year's Eve. And my father said I could have a party in the basement. So I invited some of my friends over. And he bought a beer ball. And I don't know if anybody remembers beer balls. <laughs> they don't make them anymore. They're a plastic, perfectly round, bottle that you have a little keg on. So we were super excited for this, being 16 years old and my father letting us drink for the first time. So we open it up at 8 o'clock and it's completely skunked. Horrible. You can't drink it. So my father says that I can take two of my friends and drive to Massachusetts and exchange it. And I lived in Connecticut. That's about a half hour away. New Year's Eve. So I jump in the car with my two good friends, Dan and Jim, and we drive to Sturbridge, Massachusetts. We go in the store, and they exchange the beer ball. And my friend Dan says, well, what if this one's bad? So we buy a case of tall Budweiser's as well. And we're 16. The drinking age is 18 then. I don't know how we got away with all this stuff. <laughs> so we get in the car, and we're leaving, and we go about 100 yards when I see the blue light behind me and the siren. Ugh, I'm like completely mortified. I just, I've only had my license two months. I've never pulled over. We're screwed. I pull over to the side. The cop comes to the window, shines the light on me. I give him my driver's license and registration. And then he shines the light in the back. And I turn over to look. And my friend Dan is completely sprawled over the beer trying to hide it. <laughs> He does not want to give up his beer. But anyways, he sees it. He tells him, get out of the car. There's about a foot of snow. We're standing up in the snow in our boots and getting all wet. And he tells, takes out this huge knife out of his pocket and gives it to Dan. Slash the beer ball. And Dan's like, no! <laughs> but he slashes it. The beer, the snow is all turning yellow. And then he says, pour out the beers to me my friend Jim, so we pour all the beers out. Get back in the car, he lets us go. No ticket, anything. We drive back to Connecticut, I tell the story to my father. My father says, don't worry. We get in the, our Ford, 1972 Ford LTD station wagon, we drive around the neighborhood getting beer from all our neighbors, come back, and it saves the night. And that's my story. Okay, welcome Santana to the stage. I know she signed up at intermission, very brave. So almost years ago, I'm a freshman, a really disoriented one. I have no idea I am where I am, and I need to find a place to work during the summer so that I can you know, make some money so that I can pay my fee for, for the university. Nothing too strange, and then, I'm choosing between 
whether to go to the mountain or whether to go next to the ocean. And then I have an interview, I fail for some reason, really strange. And then I have another interview for Orleans, Cape Cod. I have no idea where this is, except somewhere around Boston, okay? And then they say, okay, you're hired. Great, I'm leaving. And then I'm coming here. I have no idea where I am. I have no idea where I will live, except that my landlord's name is Tom, and he has uh, one pretty creepy photo on Facebook, on Facebook with two dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so um, after like 25 hours of traveling, um, me and uh, the girl with whom I was taking a class, um, we reached Stop and Shop in Orleans, which looks really strange and creepy. At 7.30, it's almost night already here, because it's still mid-May. And then I have no idea how to call Tom to tell him that we're at Stop and Shop. <laughs> so we find a strange guy who kind of gives... For some reason, he decided to let us call from his phone. We're calling Tom, and he comes. Okay, it's all fine. And then we go at the house, and it turns out it's an amazing, amazing house in the woods. And I can see the sky full of stars there. And there are two amazing dogs, a cat, two amazing children. And then on, on the next day, we decide to go out, you know, spread the word around that we are here, see what's going on. And then it turns out that I live 10 minutes away biking uh, from the beach, and another 15 one from the other beach. So on the one beach I can see the sunrise, and on the other one I can see the sunset. And then in the same time I live in the woods because we are all surrounded by trees. And once again my grandparents were pretty sad when I started living because this year I wasn't going to to try the tomatoes that we had in our garden, back home, like 7,000 kilometers away. Um, and it turns out that we have a whole garden full of tomatoes, lettuce, all kind of fruits and whatever you can think of. So I'm pretty happy. And then um, we are going, so it's still the first day we are here, morning, it's amazing. Kind of sunny, although the next days were pretty awfully raining. Uh, and we are heading to our workplace. And we pass by a bakery to take our morning coffee and to take a muffin. The lady there sees us. And she's like, are you J1 students? We're like, yeah. Are you, any chance you're looking for a second job? Yes. And that's how, that's the thing that every J1 wants to hear, believe me. And then she's like, well, we are hiring. What about starting your second job here? We're like, okay. So three weeks later, I'm working on, in my first job. I started working in my second job in the bakery that I fell in love with. And I continued living in my family that I love. And that's my second summer here. And I love that place. And I love the love of attraction. And Cape Cod made me believe in, made me believe in that. So I continue finding so many amazing people here. And although it's like a just a J1 student summer, thank you, Cape Cod people, for making it that amazing. Kristen Knowles, you're our final storyteller. The first job I ever had after college was working as an assistant restaurant manager at the Omni Hotel at CNN Center in Atlanta. I grew up on Cape Cod, and the reason I ended up in Atlanta was because I followed a boyfriend there. Now that was the first law that I broke, which all young women should know at that age. <laughs> that if your boyfriend says to you, sure come if you want to, yeah. if it's what you want to do, 
Um, <clears throat> and so I did, foolishly, and I thought, Atlanta, how exciting. Well, um, it turned out that my godfather worked for Omni Hotels, and he said, I can get you a job there. Um, so I took that job at the Omni Hotel at CNN Center. I was working across from CNN Studios. It was so cool. There were people in for conferences all the time, and it was just, it, it was a big tourist center and very exciting place to be. So um, a couple weeks after I'm hired, the food and beverage director calls me in and he says, there's a reason we hired you. No one will suspect you. You're young. You're from the north. You don't know anything about this culture here. So we want you to find out what's going on in that restaurant. And I was like, what? So the restaurant they had assigned me to was losing money, and nobody could figure out why. Here I am, 21 years old, white girl from Cape Cod, living in downtown Atlanta. My whole staff was of color. I've never been in an urban setting whatsoever. Um, and anyway, I was way out of my league. And so I was having to do the auditing a lot of different nights. I started noticing some weird trends in the checks because I had been a waitress and that was it started waitressing when I was 14. You know, that's what you do when you grow up on Cape Cod. You have like 12 different skill sets. And um, and so I said, nobody gets 30% tips all the time. Like that doesn't happen. And then I started seeing the same names over and over again. I'm thinking, well, this is a conference center. People are here for four days or a week at the most. But then they go back to where they came from. So how is this happening? I also started noticing that everyone on my staff was doing coke. If I needed somebody to get their check for the table saying, you know, we need our check, I'd go into the bathroom and be like, Angela! <laughs> Angela was also picking up older men and then going and working after hours. So she was picking up guys on the job. And she had stuff in the back of her car, like some really nice scarves and jewelry. She told me I could come down and check out if I wanted. Anyway, <clears throat> then there was Peter. Peter was from Poland. He was a goofball, kind of a doofus. And, um, this was back in the day when we had those, when you had a credit card, you would put it in the machine and you would run it off, the carbon copies. So that's how we did all of our things there. And um, anyway, we started getting letters from American Express and Visa and MasterCard, these people saying they weren't there. Turns out that Peter is this mastermind credit card thief. In one month, we fired seven people for credit card fraud. And the way it went down was, Peter had a card he brought to work with him, and it said Mary Lou Stevens. And so one night, there was this big table all full of um, these African-American men who were ordering like $95 a glass Courvoisier, and they paid for it in cash. And Peter took that credit card and ran it off and put, pocketed the cash and took the bill and forged it. And anyway, I called the police immediately. The police came. Within two hours, they were at his apartment. He had seven credit card processing machines in his apartment, and he had already left the state. I ended up having to go to court in downtown Atlanta and testify about all of this that was going on. And um, meanwhile, the higher-ups in the corporation were like, shh, because they didn't want to get in trouble. I mean, this was enormous. And here I am, again, a 21-year-old white girl from Cape Cod in the midst of all this high-level crime. And, um, and it turns out also that the, the uh, the cards that were used, a lot of them were actually stolen from people who were assaulted on the same day that the card was used in the restaurant. So we're talking about like sort of a dangerous element here. Um, 
Two days after I appeared in court, I got a phone call at my apartment in Dunwoody, and uh, they threatened my life, and I packed up my stuff within 48 hours, and I drove back to Orleans and moved in with my parents. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff and sound engineered by Mark Van Bork. To find out when your next opportunity to tell a story with the Mosquito is, follow us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever podcasts are found. You can also watch videos of our storytellers on the Mosquito Story Slam's channel on YouTube. Remember to tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.